A round of applause for bees that don't sting. You can hear things through grapevines, but they have other uses too. Which came first, the egg or the omelet? Bodies of water don't need exercise. Flowers make graves look prettier, but not vice versa. You'll never produce enough spit to water a garden. Extinct or imaginary, what's the difference? If your tent is small enough, it's considered clothing. Scientists figured out fog years ago. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and if you don't know what this is, well, you'll figure it out. Or, well, okay, I'll just say what it is, but I'm going to say it really fast so that people who have heard it 17 times before won't get bored. It's a podcast about the old... It's a podcast about It's a podcast about the outdoors. Now last month I encouraged all of you, all of you, to write in with questions for me or any other contributors to the podcast. And two of you did. Two. And one of those questions was just for Squall, who hasn't even been on the show for over a year, and who I tried to get to answer the question anyway, but he either could not or would not respond to my text messages. Well, whichever it was, he did not, so maybe we'll try again next month, listener Natalie. I mean, I guess we can still read your question. It was, Dear Squall, I once watched a product review of yours. The review included you introducing us to Sprite Cranberry, or Crapberry, as you called it. I was glad to be informed about this product, but at the same time, I was terribly distracted. Did you give any thought as to where you were going to review this product? The countless air fresheners on the shelf really threw me for a loop. I hope you don't take this question the wrong way. I miss your presence on Out of All Doors, and I sincerely think you have a lot to contribute to a variety of audiences. Thanks, Natalie. Again, I couldn't get a hold of Squall to answer this, but I'm just going to go ahead and give you my answer to the question, which is no. He didn't give any thought as to where he was going to review this product. And as for your unspoken question, which was clearly, why do you have so many air fresheners? Well... I don't really know how to answer that either, but I will tell you that when Squall was the sole proprietor, as he often referred to himself, of his now infamous bookstore, Seriously Books, he had an ottoman in that store that smelled absolutely horrible, and I have to say, it wouldn't shock me to learn that he couldn't bring himself to throw that ottoman away, and if one had an ottoman as foul-smelling as that in one's room, one would need a lot of air fresheners to mask that stench. Anyway, with all the squall stuff out of the way, we'll move on to the other question, the one from Andrew. And since we got so few questions this month, I made an executive decision to just have as many contributors answer Andrew's question as we're willing to do so. Other than Grang, of course, who would certainly have been willing, but who I still chose to exclude. And uh, I just, I don't want Natalie to feel left out here. It's just that the nature of your question didn't really lend itself to everyone answering it. Uh, I, I think that Squall was probably the only one who really could, and maybe I was the only one who could approximate what his answer could or should have been. Anyway, so now I'll read Andrew's questions, uh, and then we'll move on to the answers. And he will be so impressed with getting all this attention that he'll give us a favorable rating on iTunes, and he'll write us a nice review, assuming he hasn't already done those things, and he'll tell all of his friends to listen, and he'll be loyal forever because look at all this effort we went to in order to make him happy. Andrew writes, Dear Adam, You mentioned recently on Out of All Doors your favorite animal is the bat. I want to improve my enjoyment of the outdoors by having more interactions with my favorite animal, the octopus. 
However, this has proven difficult for two reasons. The first and most obvious one being that octopuses live underwater, and I am not a particularly strong swimmer, nor do I have any diving certifications. The second being that I live in northern Ohio, and much to my surprise, I found out recently that octopuses do not, in fact, live in Lake Erie. Do you have any tips you use to spend time with bats that might translate to my particular situation? I feel that with your help, I can greatly increase my prose and poetry about octopuses, which until now has relied on unreliable secondhand sources and my overall love of the outdoors. Thank you, your fan, Andrew. All right, so first of all, I'm going to read the response I got to uh, Andrew's question from classic Out of All Doors contributor, Frankly Frank, who was eager to answer this question but couldn't record his response because he wasn't allowed to make any noise in his house and was afraid of the consequences if he did so. So Frankly Frank writes, oh, and I'm not going to attempt to mimic his distinctive voice, but he writes, Dear Andrews, tis a titillating feat indeed to ask a question. What curiosity we must feel and how pressing it must rise within us to voice or type an idea of a query we then push forth to a listening or reading ear slash eye that may hear slash see what we wish to know from our own questioning mouth or fingers. So for that, Andrews, I thank you and thank you as well for the question itself, as well as the asking thereof. As well, thank you. Now to wit... There need not be enjoyment of bat nor octopus to enjoy one and all, for aren't all and one more and less the same classification, that being the mammal, or to put a fine point on it, the animal? Let's say organism for the purposes of clarity. Organic matter. Now far be it for me to say which matter to think on and which to ignore, or also which to cast favoritism towards, the other to turn away. I will say only this, Andrews. Whichever the matter to which best suits you, suits you. That is the one to which your attention will land, and the other perhaps not, or also perhaps so, but that decision comes only once acted on, if ever acted on, or not, forever. Thank you. And now let's hear the answer from intrepid hermit correspondent Cayman Bird. Well, Andrew, I think your choices are fairly limited and, quite frankly, obvious. You either have to make... A personal habitat for an octopus to live in. And I don't know how you go about acquiring an octopus, but you either do that or you uproot your life and you move to the octopus, wherever it may be. That's really all the choice I can, all the advice I can give you. I don't know much about them. And now we'll hear the answer from our fugitive bird watcher. Harrison Blum. Dear Andrew, I'm sorry there are no octopi in northern Ohio. Lake Erie is a hotbed for many marine wonders, from rainbow smelt and walleye to emerald shiners and white perch, but I sympathize with your plight. The octopus is a marvelous creature. She can use tools like a crow, change her body color in three-tenths of a second, and perhaps most impressively, she can open childproof pill bottles. I wish we could all travel to the places where our loves naturally reside, but until you've received your diving certification, or you find a way to book submarine trips on Expedia, may I offer a simple suggestion. Make your own octopus. Glue socks to a cat. Fill a balloon with something mushy and muscular like a pound of raw chicken or some half-settled gelatin. Tape streamers to your fingers and be your own octopus. 
If all of these options fail to kindle your tentacled spirit, squint hard until a nearby object looks like an octopus. Or start calling something plentiful around you an octopus. For example, hey guys, check it out. I licked an octopus and stuck it on this envelope. Or you can do what I do. Tell everyone around you that you saw an octopus. Nine times out of ten, the birds I see are just the same old crow. Please tell Eleanor I say hello. Love, Harrison. And now let's hear the answer from mysterious beast expert, The Saint. This is the sad story about the octopus, and I'm The Saint. The bad news about the octopus is, if you haven't seen him for a little while, he might well be extinct. From the beginning sands and dawns of time, animals have been going extinct. In fact, after the first animals were alive, they went extinct before any more animals roamed the earth. This is not a matter of scientific inquiry, nor of religious revelation, but rather something that has been chronicled in the observations of history. The most devastating and terrifying thing is white nose syndrome. It makes your favorite animals go extinct and will um, especially affect them this time of year. Even people someday might not be safe. And finally, let's hear the answer to the question from Cousin Brent. Dear listener, uh, my name is Cousin Brent. and Maybe you've heard my voice before, maybe not. But you're hearing it now, and I hope you not only hear it, but you give it a listening to. Now, I don't blame you for falling for the ocean's beloved octopod. It's all too easy for its tentacles to reach out and curl around our beating hearts and make them still just for a moment. But I also understand that the distance is tough. You start to forget the the little things. Memories you thought you'd remember until your last breath start to fade after just a few months. You try to remember the color of its eyes or the sound it made while bottom feeding on crabs. You write down the details in a notebook before you forget, but on the page, they begin to feel like fabrications. When you read them, it's almost like you're reading a zoology lecture by someone else, more than a real memory. And already you wonder if if that afternoon in June when you went snorkeling and you saw the octopus skimming across the bottom of the ocean floor, you wonder if maybe that was a story that someone else told you. But you promise yourself you'll visit again, but tickets to the coast are so expensive, and you're in classes, and the octopus, I mean, yes, it can survive for a few moments above water, but the second its skin dries up, it's gone forever. And then you start to, you start to wonder if the octopus and you even understood each other in the first place. Sure, it mentioned it studied English in high school, but most of the time, it responded to your questions with unintelligible gurgling. And at first, you loved that. You'd both laugh, but eventually, you want to feel known, you know? And all the Wikipedia articles you read and YouTube videos you watch, they can't close the distance. And you see the octopus with other octopus and some saltwater creatures you don't even know. But you can't blame it, you know? You're not there and they understand each other in a way you never really will. So maybe you drink a little too much and go out to Lake Erie. You look out onto the fresh water, and 
you understand it and it understands you. I mean, you grew up together. You've known each other for years. And so you push out into the water in a little deep V-hole and you spot some perch. And the way the moonlight hits their scales, it makes you forget just for one night about the tentacles so far away now that used to hold you so close. And in the morning you wake up in the boat and you feel a little guilty, but was it really wrong? I mean, the octopus was probably doing the same thing. But then you remember that marine biologists have said that octopods are monogamous. But who knows? And you're so far away. Were you really together? Your fishing buddies, they, they tell you not to worry, and they brag about the latest master anglers they've bagged. But while they laugh, you catch yourself gazing out towards the coast. The written-down memories crawl off the page and back into your bones. You feel them fill you up, and you think you might overflow. You start saving your drinking money for plane tickets, and you start reading up on what octopods changing skin colors mean, and you leave to go spend more time with an octopus. And you get to the coast, and you push out into the water in a little deep V-hole. And you hold your arm out over the edge of the boat, and after only a few moments, the tentacles break the surface and embrace your open arms. And you hop over the edge, and the warm water envelops you like you never even left. And eight appendages of slime curl around you, and you cradle its bulbous head and feel its skin turn amber. But you don't feel trapped. You feel in place, understood. And you know in that moment how easy it is to spend more time with an octopus because you know you don't want to spend time doing anything else at all. And Andrew, I want to encourage you to not stop listening here because maybe there may be other responses to your questions sprinkled throughout the episode. You'll never know unless you listen to all of it from beginning to end, and you'll also need to pay very close attention. Let's begin. Andrew, your question sucks. Octopuses suck. In case you're wondering who this is, it's the ghost. Give this podcast a bad rating and then never listen to it again. This is the ghost. And shall we? Okay, Grang, we're recording. I assume you're calling to tell me you didn't get the login information for the blog? No, that's not why I'm calling. I'm just calling to give you and the listeners a general update about my uh, pursuit of the login information. And really, I have quite a lot to tell you. It has been quite a month. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, since you're being evasive, I'm going to guess that of all the many, many things you have to tell us, the login information for the blog is not among them. So... Uh, with that established right from the top, why don't you tell me this, Greg? Um, did you figure out how the out-of-all-door company got the login information from you in the first place? Well, first of all, it's pronounced Utafol. It's Scandinavian. And second of all, no, I'm still not 100% sure how they got it from me. 
But I don't really think that's all that important now. The important thing is getting the new... Well, Greg, uh, Greg, let me just interrupt you there and tell you my theory about how the Utavals got the login information from you. How about that? Um, okay. Great. Uh, so I think it was because after you got the login information for Maya, you logged into the blog and changed the login information, and then you erased all of Maya's posts and put one all-caps post right at the top of the site where everyone could see it as soon as they went to the blog that read, Congratulations, Drent. Through clever subterfuge, I have wrested control of the famous Out of All Doors blog from the clutches of the usurper, and I present it here and now to you. Login name, Out of All Doors Forever. Password, lowercase a9 ampersand l13 lowercase xl4889 rip corndog. We did it. Your friend and collaborator, Greg. That sounds like a very secure password to me. Well, well one would assume so, wouldn't one? Um, but then I think what happened was the Utavals were looking for an online presence for their business, searched their own name, found our blog, read your post, and used the login information in your post to log in and change the login information. And then they erased your post and posted something about it being the future online site of the Utaval door company. You want to know how I know all of this? Last month, after I put out the call for listeners to send in questions to the show, a listener sent me this question. Could this be how Grang lost the password? And attached to that email was a screenshot of the post I just read to you. Well, that's a theory and certainly an interesting one. But I'm afraid I just haven't been able to confirm any of the many, many potential theories that are out there. I've been much more focused on getting the login information than worrying about things in the past that no one can change. Well, why don't you tell me some of the other theories? Just the best ones. Maybe we can rule some of them out. Okay, well, for starters, they could have just guessed. Number two, they could have gone through my trash and found the scraps of paper with all the earlier drafts of that post that I'd written out by hand. Number three, a hacker who sent you that screenshot may actually have been working for the Udevalds himself and could have hacked the login information. Or number I four, think we can, they, I, I think we can throw out all of those. I think those are pretty clearly not the answer, so this is good. We're making progress. Well, I hate to disagree, Drent, but we're not making progress because we're still focused on the past. What we should be doing is looking into the future, which is why I need to tell you all about man versus wild versus child. Uh, okay, what's that? It's my idea for my segment on Out of All Doors once I get the login information for the blog, which should be soon. Last time you said my ideas weren't fleshed out enough and... That's a fair criticism. So this time I have more than just a title. I've got a title and a concept. I did not say your ideas weren't fleshed out enough last time. I said it was ridiculous for you to be pitching ideas when you didn't even have the login information for me. And you still don't. So it's still ridiculous. But this time the idea is fleshed out. It's very simple. It's me surviving all by myself in harsh outdoor environments. Except I'm not by myself. I also have a child with me. It's man versus wild versus child. And each month I'll have a different child. Listeners can write in and nominate their children or other children they know. And each month I'll sift through all the nominations and choose which child will be surviving in the wild with me for that month. 
One month it might be an unruly toddler. The next it might be a moody preteen. The next an infant. But you you don't know anything about surviving in the wild. But I'll have the child to help me. That's the genius. It's all about teamwork. Although, in the case of the infant, I'll probably have to teach him how to talk first so we can communicate. You don't know anything about surviving in the wild or about taking care of children, Grang. This is a terrible idea. And again, this is all pointless because I have no hope that you're going to get the login information, and even if you do, I never promised you a segment. Oh, I'll get the login information, Drent. Don't worry about that. I'm hot on its trail, and I almost got it this month. I was so close. I... I don't believe that. Where are you, anyway? I'm in Minnesota. Okay, why? Well, the Udival Door Company's in Minnesota. And in order to become an employee and earn their trust so they'd promote me to Webmaster, where I could then gain access to the login information for the blog, I had to travel up here to Minnesota. You drove to Minnesota from Chicago, and, and Megan's okay with this? Oh, no, not at all. In fact, she's so not okay with it that she's locked me out of our checking account. I was only able to bring the money I had with me at the time, and I spent most of that on sleuthing supplies. You know, a fingerprint kit, magnifying glass, deerstalker hat, stuff like that. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, I'm barely keeping up. You're an employee of the Uteval Door Company in Minnesota right now? What do you do? Well, I applied for the job of webmaster, a position their teenage grandson's been occupying until they can find someone more responsible. But they have a company policy where everyone they hire has to spend one day as a door-to-door door salesman so they can get a good feel for the product and get experience interacting with the customers. You don't even have to sell the doors. It's just for the experience, sort of a company tradition. Although if you do sell some doors, you get a nice bonus, which I really could have used because those sleuthing supplies were not cheap, and Megan hasn't been open to sending me any more money because she thinks me trying to get the password for the blog's a waste of time. Isn't that ridiculous? But anyway, I was towing my wagon of doors through a nice suburban neighborhood, and I hadn't quite made a sale yet. But I had some good conversations, and during one of those conversations, I turned my back on the wagon full of doors just for a moment, no more than ten minutes. And when I turned back, the wagon was gone and all the doors with it. Someone someone stole your wagon full of doors. Yes, and the Udavals were not happy. They told me that's never happened before, in fact. So rather than promoting me to webmaster, they were forced instead to demote me to the position of day watchman at the factory. And also, this was an unpaid position because the cost of all the doors that got stolen was coming out of my salary. They were pretty expensive doors. Not the premium doors, but pretty good doors nonetheless. Pretty pricey. All right, so so now you're further from getting the password than when you started. Well, no, because at this point, I'm in the company. I just needed to be a good enough day watchman for long enough to pay off the doors that got stolen, get promoted to salesman again, not get any more doors stolen, and then get promoted to webmaster. Okay, so did any of that happen? Well, it would have happened, except I had my sleuthing magnifying glass hanging from my belt for easy access, 
and the sunlight shone through it at just the right angle to start a stack of the premium doors on fire. And then when everyone was distracted by the fire and trying to put it out, someone snuck in and stole another stack of premium doors right off the factory floor. Can you believe how brazen these door thieves are? I still can't believe it. I'm struggling to imagine who would want to steal so many doors, Grang. Well, these are very nice doors. Very valuable. I'd have to imagine you'd get a good lot from them if you knew someone who could move them. Anyway, this wasn't a good development, but it wasn't necessarily a bad development either because all that happened was that they added the cost of the burned and stolen doors to what I owed them and demoted me again. This time to Night Watchmen, which is actually an easier job because they've got this system of bells attached to all the doors someone might want to steal. So all you have to do is just sit in one place and listen for the bells. I mean, really, the only reason it's a demotion at all is because the hours are worse. It even pays the same as Day Watchmen. Isn't that strange? Wait, so instead of being zero dollars and one promotion from the login information, you're now, what, hundreds of dollars and three promotions from the login information? You're moving very steadily in the wrong direction. Well, but the thing about the night is that there's no sunlight, so there was no chance of my magnifying glass starting another fire. So that was good. But unfortunately, misfortune did strike again. Because, as you know, I'm a big fan of bell choirs. So I was listening to a recording of an amateur bell choir during my shift, and as a result, I didn't notice the jangling of the bells in the factory that meant someone was stealing a bunch of premium doors again. Although when the Udavals discovered the theft in the morning, I was reminded of a few moments in the bell choir recording that seemed a little dissonant. You know, just some off notes here and there. But I hadn't thought much of them at the time because this was an amateur bell choir after all. So, anyway, I was demoted again. This time to Dog Door Tester, which actually turned out to be a job that the Udavals created just for me. You mean they created it just to demote you to it? Why didn't they just fire you? Well, I think they were still hoping they could recoup some of their losses from the stolen and burned doors in my labor. And I know you're thinking dog door tester sounds a little degrading, but really it wasn't. All I had to do was go around all the doors with dog doors in them and make sure the hinges worked on the dog door so they would swing open and close properly. Which, you know, I could have done just with my hand, but I really wanted that promotion, so I decided I had to show them how committed I was to going above and beyond. So what I decided to do was get down on my hands and knees and crawl through the dog doors myself to test them, as if I were a dog. But I got stuck in one, and they had to cut the door apart to get me out. And it was a premium door. So they were pretty upset, and they added the cost of that door to my bill, and they demoted me again. <sighs> Grang, this is, uh... Hold on, Drent. We're almost to the part where I almost get the login information, so just bear with me. So anyway, after they demoted me again, they actually hired a mangy stray dog to take my place as the dog door tester, and I was demoted to the job of dog door tester feeder. So my job was to feed the dog door tester, which, as I just said, was a dog. So again, I wanted to prove myself to the Udavals because at this point I was starting to feel like I was letting them down a little bit. 
And I did a great job of feeding the dog. In fact, I actually did too great a job because the dog door tester got too fat and it got stuck in a dog door on a premium door. And since they didn't want to ruin another premium door, this time they cut the dog door tester out of the door rather than the other way around. So I was demoted again. But this time there weren't any ruined or stolen doors to add to my total. So in that sense, I was actually improving because my demotions weren't costing me as much money as they had before. But anyway, I was demoted to dog door tester barrier. So I was in charge of burying the cut up dog door tester. Now, this was very sad for me because in some ways he'd been my only friend through this whole ordeal. But it was also very difficult in a literal sense because he was in a lot of pieces. So I asked the Udavals if I could fashion a rough casket for the dog door tester out of any, you know, kind of mistake doors that they had lying around the factory that they were just going to throw out anyway. And they agreed. So I made the casket and I think of... So I made the casket, and I think it must have been the fact that the casket was made out of old doors that caused the confusion. That and my grief, because I ultimately accidentally buried a stack of premium doors in the dog door tester's grave. I mean, Grang, I I can't even imagine where they demoted you from there. I thought you were at the bottom several demotions ago. Well, when I realized my mistake, I didn't tell the Udavals right away. I started thinking, well, in some ways, I'm actually not doing all that great a job at getting the login information back. But ever since I got into the Udavals, I'd been hearing about how irresponsible their grandson is, the one who is the current webmaster for the company. So I thought, well, I do have a little bit of money left that the Udavals hadn't found yet. So maybe if I just offered him that money in exchange for the login information, he'd sell it to me. Irresponsible people are also often unscrupulous. So I offered him the money, and he loved the idea. Oh, Grang, I'm on the edge of my seat trying to see how this could fail. Well, he loved the idea so much that he sold the login information to a higher bidder. A third party with more means than me, unfortunately. So really, in the end, this is all Megan's fault for not sending me more money that I could have used to negotiate with. Okay, but hold on. Who else could possibly care enough about that particular web address to get into a bidding war with you over it? The Utevalds. Well, why would they buy their own login information from their own grandson? Like like they paid their grandson not to give it to you? No, not the Utevalds. The Utevalds with a D on the end. They're like a distant branch of the family or something. Apparently, they officially changed the spelling of their last name back in the 1800s. I don't know much about them, except that they and the Udavals hate each other. But that's where I'm headed next. I gave the Udavals my two weeks' notice this morning. So as soon as I'm finished here, I'm packing up my sleuthing gear and heading up north to infiltrate the Utavalds and get our password and login name, of course. Wait, you're working, for, you're working for the Utavalds for another two weeks? What, what do they have you doing? Well, I'm not allowed to be near the factory anymore, so they just have me begging for change on an overpass and then turning over whatever I collect to them every night. And I know what you're thinking... Why don't I pocket some of the money and use it to eat a decent meal instead of the awful gruel that the Udavals make me eat? But no, I can't because they strip search me every night after they pick me up. 
Well, Greg, I have to say that uh, nothing you've said today fills me with anything resembling hope. I mean, this... But, Drent, don't you see, don't you see, I'm closer to the password than ever before. No, you're not, Greg. A few days ago, you were in the room with the person who had the password, and now you're standing on an overpass begging for change to give to the grandparents of the person who used to have the password until you gave him the idea to sell it to someone else. No, no, Drent, you're, you're misunderstanding my point. You literary types are so literal. I may not be physically closer to the password, but philosophically I'm closer than I've ever been. Before my travails this month, I knew that I was fully devoted to the cause of reclaiming the password. But I didn't know whether you knew that, and not knowing whether you knew that made me question whether I really knew it. But I know you'll agree that if one thing's become clear from the story I've just recounted to you, it's that I'm as unswervingly devoted to our cause as Hamlet was to his, or Oedipus. And what these plays, and really all great literature, teach us is that the limits of your potential are the limits of your devotion. And now you know that my devotion is limitless, and therefore my potential is so limitless that it's not even really potential anymore at all. It's basically actuality. And the listeners know this too. And knowing that all of you know this makes me know it all the more. So it's practically a foregone conclusion that when I talk to you next, I'll be reporting that I finished my quest and that the blog is ours again. Who knows? Maybe it'll be tomorrow. Well, probably not tomorrow. I'll be begging then. But well, I uh, never questioned your devotion, Grang. Uh, it's it's always nor I yours, friend. Nor I yours. Uh. Well. Yeah. Uh, okay. Bye, Grang. Bye. We're trying to get a straight answer, but no one's giving us a straight answer. Sometimes all a person wants is a straight answer, and the one thing they can't get is a straight answer. And that's how all of us are feeling right now. Maybe we just haven't asked the right people. There must be some straight answerers around here somewhere. Excuse us, miss, but what have we entered? Excuse us, sir, but what have we entered? Excuse us, y'all, but what have we entered? Excuse us, child. Excuse us, talking statue. Excuse us, automated information kiosk. But what have we entered? A janitor mops his way over to us. Why don't you guys read that sign, he asks, using a plunger to point at a sign. We sigh collectively. Another person, incapable of or unwilling to, give us a straight answer. We already read the sign. We aren't idiots. We're just trying to get a straight answer. All we want is one person to hear us ask, Excuse us, but what have we entered? And respond by saying, Oh, that's easy, it's right there on the sign. All of us, from you to me to that man to that woman to that talking statue to that janitor, all of us together, we have entered the battery. A golden bat necklace, purest gold, a gold chain with a golden bat-shaped pendant, simply the goldenest. 
and the eyes of the bat pendant are made from two black jewels, identical in color, but they are not the same kinds of jewels a professional jeweler will tell you. And this necklace and this pendant, if you add their value together, are worth half of the sense that you recognize. Let me explain. If someone offered to trade you this necklace, if you were to offer to surrender your recognition of half of the sense that you currently recognize, that would be a fair trade, and you might just be walking home with a nice golden bat necklace, perhaps recognizing the smell of baking bread, but perhaps not recognizing the smell of pies being baked in ovens directly adjacent to the bread ovens. A bat-shaped bow tie. Where in the two sides of the bow tie are the bat's wings, you can wear this bow tie to any occasion where a bat-shaped bow tie isn't disallowed. Be sure to triple check your invitation to make sure bat-shaped bow ties aren't disallowed. Sometimes, depending on the invitation, text forbidding bat-shaped bow ties is written in invisible ink. Do you know how to get your hands on lemon juice? If you intend to carry the lemon juice to your invitation in your bare cupped palms, be absolutely certain that you don't have any open cuts in your flesh. Your bat-shaped bow tie will grant you several perks, primarily in the realm of keeping your collar cinched closed, and also in the realm of being confident that your bow tie doesn't look like a lesser animal, such as a cricket or a common brown bird. A bat ring, roughly made, ancient in feel and appearance, wrapped around only one finger at a time, as one would most likely expect. Men and women alike see the ring and think, ah shucks, the person to whom that finger belongs is already spoken for. Insects see the ring and think, something about that ring gives me the heebie-jeebies. And if extraterrestrials were to abduct someone wearing the bat ring, they would see it and think even weirder thoughts than usual. Thoughts so weird that if even the most unflappable human representative were to be privy to them, she would not be able to prevent herself from saying, Okay? That bat ring gives your hand an air of mystery. You know the saying, I know it like the back of my hand? Sure, there can be comfort in the familiar, but there can also be tedium. What wouldn't most of us give to glance down at the back of one of our hands and be struck by the oddity of what we see there? The bat ring never changes color according to your mood. Never. Your quote-unquote moods have no effect on the bat ring. Zero. If you want a ring that changes color based on your mood, you don't deserve the bat ring, and I'm not saying a bat will come in the night to remove it from your hand by any means necessary, even if that means taking your whole finger, but I am saying that something will, like if the bat considers the mission beneath him, and he hires a lesser animal, such as a cuttlefish, in which case you'd be perfectly safe unless you sleep with your ring finger dangling in the ocean. Bat jeans. They're made from denim so sturdy, it's been said to be difficult to bust it. Bell-bottoms, jinkos, acid wash, and mom jeans. Since the beginning of jeans, mankind has been tinkering with jeans and then deriving humor from those jeans in retrospect. Or sometimes not even in retrospect. Sometimes while the jeans are currently stylish. Who among us hasn't said skinny jeans and been summarily rewarded with gales of laughter? But bat jeans are mockery-proof. They're playful, but solemnly so. Fanciful, yet dignified. What makes them bat jeans? They aren't bat-shaped, and they do not have a pattern made of interlocking bats printed on them. 
I can't really describe their cut, but that has a lot to do with their name, I think. Bats don't wear them, they don't attract bats, and the proceeds for their sales don't go to saving bats, although they should. But trust me, just try them on and you'll know. It will all make sense. You'll pull a scrap of paper from your pocket and you'll write, Wow, these really are bat jeans on it. And then you'll turn to the person next to you and hiss, Psst, this note is for Gloria. Pass it on. And then, as the symphony plays on, the person you handed the note to will turn to the person next to him and repeat your message, and person by person, the note will be passed down the road, each person's symphony experience interrupted in turn, until Gloria receives the note, reads it, nods, turns it over, writes a response, and sends it back down the road to you. Each person's symphony experience interrupted again now for a second time, and at last the note will reach the person next to you, and he will lean over and hiss, Psst, this note is for you, from Gloria. And you'll open it, and it will read, Why are you trying on jeans right now? We're at the symphony. And I was going to write about another article of bat clothing or another wearable bat accessory here, but Andrew's question was about bats, sort of, so I feel obligated to answer it here while we're in the battery. So, Andrew, you want tips about how to spend more time with octopuses based on my techniques for spending time with bats? Uh, I don't know. Maybe try to lure an octopus with the offer of a free hug? But the trick is, you never specify who the free hug will be from. So the octopus shows up expecting that you'll be the one hugging it, but actually, no. The hug is from a toddler-sized doll named Hank Hug. Here's a quote from Hank Hug's promotional materials. Hank Hug is the doll who doesn't just hug you back. Nine times out of ten, he initiates the hug. Also, I want to be very clear. Do not get the similarly named Hang Hunk doll by mistake. Hang Hunk will not initiate a hug with an octopus nine times out of ten, nor any times out of ten. And now, having received our straight answer, we've accomplished everything we set out to accomplish. We never said our goals are ambitious. They were only specific, but demanding specificity in the accomplishment of one's goals can be a kind of ambition, but in this case, it wasn't. We got someone to give us a straight answer about something that we already knew because it was obvious, and so now we can go to bed feeling pleased with ourselves. Go ahead and judge us accordingly. We do not care. Period. Smug, self-satisfied, and sporting grins so insufferable they'd make a crocodile weep sincere tears, we leave the battery. Listen, okay... I know I said that Cousin Ben and Dwayne would never, ever, ever be on Out of All Doors again, that their naked threats against me had blacklisted them forever, but things change. I got an email this month from a listener, a critic, actually, and he said that no outdoor podcast worth its salt doesn't have a segment about outdoor photography. And, uh, well, I mean, from where I'm sitting, Out of All Doors is worth far, far more than its salt, but we didn't have a segment about outdoor photography, so I knew we needed to rectify that. And unfortunately, the only two people I know who know anything about photography are Cousin Ben and Dwayne. Apparently, it's a very rare hobby, so believe me, if I could find anyone else who had any interest in photography of any kind, even just on a very amateurish level, I would gladly give the segment to them, but I just don't think that person exists. So, Cousin Ben and Dwayne are back, and the fact that they're together gives me the creeps. I do not like that they've become friends, but I figure that if I just quarantine them to their own segment, then hopefully they won't be able to do much harm, 
And if I get any inkling that they're plotting or being subversive in any way, they'll be gone. And they know that, and they've promised to abide by my rules. And also I told them that they couldn't answer Andrew's octopus question. So now here's Regarding the Dawn, a segment about outdoor photography. Hear that, Mr. Critic, Mr. Uh, let me look at the email here. Mr. Wayne D. Benjamin, now which podcast isn't worth its salt? Not this one. Anyway, here's Regarding the Dawn. Hey everyone, this is Dwayne Leesman. And this is Cousin Ben. Back again for a new segment on Out of All Doors. Yeah, oh yeah, up top. <laughs> Woo. So, yeah. So, uh, listeners, we're back, both of us, together. This is our new segment regarding the dawn. Booyah! Booyah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, listeners, it seems that the almighty nature podcast, Out of All Doors, was in dire need of a photography segment. And it just so happens both Dwayne Leesman and Cousin Ben are experts in just such an art form. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, we are. So, the powers that be, who shall remain nameless, decided that maybe we weren't as expendable as they had once painted us. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) So, as you see, I have contacted Dwayne this last week, after hearing about the troubles with the critics that the podcast was having, and I suggested to him that, since he and I were both highly respected and feared medicine men in the dark tribal knowledge of nature photography, that we could combine our respective mojos and rally round the show to help out. <laughs> we got the medicine you need. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, <laughs> here we are. Uh, Dwayne has agreed, and boom! Instant awesome segment. Boom. <laughs> All right. Well, gee, honey, let's get uh, into this. No, 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 no. Uh, okay. Okay. Let's get something straight here, Ben, and all of you out of all doors listeners. Don't you ever call me gee, honey again. Ever. Understand? Uh, sorry. I, I meant Dwayne. So, uh, you know, I'm not gee, honey. I never was, nor have I ever been gee, honey. That was all fake. A complete lie. The only reason I ever called myself that was because my quack therapist said I should. And what an idiot he was. All right, Dwayne, can we just get back to the... For whatever reason, I've just been dealt a bad hand in life. I'm not sure why that is, but everything in my life seems to just go wrong. So I'm sick of all of it. I'm not going to hide anymore. I'm going to call it like I see it. G-Honey is dead. Capiche? Capiche. Okay, so And another thing. Let's just put this out here. Folk music sucks. It really does. It's it's awful. Now, don't get me wrong. I love music, but I'm more into punk. All kinds of punk music, like art punk and peace punk and street punk and, and skate punk and, and right girl and, and metal punk and, and cow punk, electric punk and, and dark cabaret, uh, Celtic punk. Uh, and- Dwayne, 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 Dwayne. Come on. All right, whatever. I, I just wanted to be known that, that I'm a real person with real feelings who's Interested in other things, not folk music. I like modern art and beat poetry and angry gardening and reading anarchist fiction. And and photography. Oh, well, yeah, photography as well. Well then, Dwayne, let's get into it, shall we then? Uh, You know, let's get things rolling. Perhaps we should uh, give the listeners a little background into our respective uh, backgrounds, uh, into this mysterious and little-known art form of 
nature photography, shall we? Sure. You uh, you want to go first? Well, Dwayne, I spent my early formative years with a small film-type camera, taking pictures of all sorts of things around me. Classmates, cars, skies, houses, huh. animals, bicycles, insects. You know, all the things one would normally use a camera for. Uh-huh. Things quickly became very boring to me, however. I could sense I needed to branch out a bit and uh, work in more exceptional, interesting areas of photography. So I started to seek out the darker side of things. I started to take pictures of the injustices in the world, the homeless, the downtrodden, the criminal element, the evil, the tainted, the mall, the suburbs, the, the uh, uh, you know, all that. Wait, what? Uh, wait, just hold on. And then I turned 15 and then that was it. I had shut the door, slammed it shut on my old sensibilities and aesthetics. I was looking into the future, and I had seen the new aesthetic, the new vision, avant-gardalism. Yes, Duane, German sensibilities, German expressionist sensibilities to be precise, had invaded Midwest America, and I was swept up in the new invasion Wait, of- wait, you, you never said what, anything- what? Expressionism? Yes. I'm sorry, go on. So, all of my photography work shifted radically towards the ethereal, the philosophical, the cerebral, and I began working in experimental forms and genres. I had several long-running projects going at once, and I was breaking new ground right and left when I was noticed by the very underground and fiercely respected Commune of Le Noir Photographeurs. They were based out of Lyon, France at the time, but I was given a chance... To fight in the gauntlet of physical combat for a position on the team of commando photographers who were engaged in guerrilla cultural warfare all over Europe at the time. And I won my rightful spot as Lieutenant Vicar Sergeant in Arms of Telephoto Sniper Division. Lieutenant Sergeant Sniper? Yes, but that was only a little while in my early years. After the noir photographers disbanded in light of the second Berlin Wall coming down in 95, I made my way across the Alps in a spiritual journey of sorts, a personal discovery of starvation with nothing to do, nothing to do at all, but carry my massive wet plate camera, still camera setup that I had had just been packing along with the huge amount of equipment needed to develop and store those huge glass plate negatives and and all the equipment needed. And, And when I came out, triumphant on the other side after that journey i was done done yes done i was birthed fully formed from the crucible of my quest a product of conception by the alps themselves and father avant-garde i was the ultimate nature photographer able to blend both boring nature photography with cutting edge advanced philosophical schools of art and thought into one masterful art form, avant naturism, I called it, and I've never looked back since. How about you, doing? Uh, I, well, I, I, I like nature, and um, I, I take lots of pictures with um, my camera. Uh, but, but, but you mean uh, that's what you have done uh, until the last big burst of creative inspiration that you had, and and now, now. Now you have uh, pushed beyond the casual snapshot nature work, and you are taking much more or less, uh, but much yep, more... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's, that's what I meant. That. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, okay. So uh, now what? Um, how are we, uh, we going to do this show? 
Oh, uh, well, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> we are going to um, offer subject guides, suggestions, tips, technical walkthroughs, gear reviews, book reviews. <sighs> are we going to take any pictures? <laughs> what? What? Of course, of course we are. It's a photography podcast segment. <laughs> Why would you even suggest that we wouldn't, Dwayne? Well, you know what the listener would say. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hypothetical uh, listener question, man. Yeah, yes, of course. Uh, yes, uh, listener. We will be taking lots of pictures. Cool. Okay, uh, so uh, let's quickly get into the technical content here. We um, so yeah. Um, Little photography tip to get you listeners started. So, outdoor photography... Is best done outdoors. Uh, well, obviously, I mean... Oh, I mean, not, not that obvious. It would seem obvious, but um, to a lot of people, but, but oh, it's a very vital part of outdoor photography, nature photography. Right, Dwayne? Absolutely. Many people. Total noob move, man. You gotta get out there. You, you gotta get out there where nature really is. Get in nature's face. Right up in there, man. Uh, uh, and there you have it. So, uh, tip number one. Get out there. Well, uh, that's all the time we have for Regarding the Dawn for this month. Uh, be sure to get out there and get some practice enlisters for next month so that we all have a, uh, a, a base of uh, experience to go off of uh, for when we bring you more tips and techniques of, for outdoor photography next time. Yeah. <laughs> all right, then. Until next time. Later. Uh, later. The dawn, regarding the dawn, regarding the dawn, regarding the dawn. And now the outfit of a day with the ghost bat queen. The outfit of a day is lounging on a rock in the cemetery, under a naked aspen tree, reading a book, and you feel breath on your neck followed by a suction sensation on your left ear. You look up. Oh, it wasn't a ghost at all. It's an octopus. What up? It says. Why is it here, on this unholy ground? You gently detach its tentacles from the side of your head, unwrap it from the branches, Put it in your backpack and mount your bicycle. You ride all the way to the post office and mail your backpack containing the octopus to Andrew. He'll know what to do. So, where are we today, Jason? Well, I'd figure we'd try to help our listener friend Andrew. He wrote in saying he's having a hard time finding octopuses to be friends with because there are none in Lake Erie near his home. 
Well, I found an Earth where octopuses do live in Lake Erie and have the ability to talk, so I figured we'd go meet one and ask it a few questions on Andrew's behalf. That sounds like a great idea. All right, then. I will just turn on the portal hopper's submarine conversion, and into the water we go. You know, scientists who have studied octopuses say they believe they can have individual temperaments and even personalities. Fascinating. Hey, Jason, there's an octopus now. Excuse me, Mr. Octopus, could we ask you a few questions? Of course. What might I do for you today? Uncanny. He's really talking. Well, sure I am. What did you expect? You'll have to excuse us. We're multiverse travelers, and on the Earth we come from, octopuses can't speak. Well, that's a real shame. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, I've never thought about how difficult it would be for octopuses when they want to express themselves. No, that's not what I meant at all. I meant it's a real shame you two come down to my home and use terms like octopuses. That's racist. Oh, I'm so sorry. Your world is new to us. What is the correct term? Well, octopi, of course. I see. Yes, well, you didn't know. Now you do. Well, I, um, I, I don't want to harp on the subject, of course, but um, just for educational purposes, would you mind explaining uh, how exactly is that racist? I mean, do octopuses, uh, I mean, octopi actually have varying racial identities? Well, no, but we octopi have, over the centuries since man came to the Americas, become good friends with the white human population. So we're deeply offended when, for example, they say black lives matter, while I say all lives matter, including octopi. Now, when you say they say, who do you mean exactly? Why, the blacks, of course. I mean, they try to keep convincing the world that racism against them still exists when slavery already ended over a hundred years ago. The tables have turned, and the only real racism now is against the whites. And, of course, their allies, the octopi. God damn it, it's a racist octopus. How can you say that? Didn't you just hear me explain to you? Using completely infallible logic, whites and their octopi allies can't be racist because we allowed all of the advantages, such as affirmative action, to go to the blacks after the civil rights movement. Now we're the disadvantaged. Let's get the out of here, Jason. Yeah, I'm having a hard time understanding why our listener friend Andrew would ever want to be associated with a vile creature like this. Hey now, I thought you had some questions for me. (sighs) Well, Casey, I don't know the next time we'll get to meet a talking octopus. Maybe he can at least tell us something about octopi that Andrew might find interesting. Well, of course I can. For instance, you know that Beatles song, Octopus's Garden? Well, octopi do make so-called gardens by collecting items such as crustacean shells. It may look like a garden, 
But the true purpose is to create a sort of fortress around our layers to protect us from violent creatures. Well, that is interesting. Sure is. And next year, when President Trump takes office, we'll join our brothers on land to build an octopus's garden all the way across the Mexican border. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Nope. Yes, it's all true. Trump has really gained momentum. Have you heard his campaign song? I think it's really rallied his support. Have a listen. Bye, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. That song is about compromise and love and understanding. Come on, Casey, I have to file a cease and desist. You say you're multiverse travelers. If that's so, wouldn't there, in the infinitude of the multiverse, always be at least one Earth on which you choose not to file a cease and desist? I mean, if there wasn't an Earth that represented that option, it couldn't be a true infinity, now could it? And in that case, really, what's the point? Shut up! That's not how the multiverse works, you stupid piece of racist octopus! Here's a book on systemic racism. I think you'd really benefit from giving it a read. Um, octopi on this earth can read, right? Of course we can. We just don't like to. As some of you are certainly aware, one of Gentleman's Mill's most talked about products of all time is the Gentleman's Mill's Love Potion, perhaps the most Gentleman's Millsiest product ever devised by Gentleman's Mill's or anyone else for that matter. Three years after it was first introduced, and some people still haven't stopped writing letters to the Gentleman's Mill's co-founders about the Love Potion, and many of these letters are quite lengthy. So the Gentleman's Mill's co-founders thought, well, if the Love Potion was able to generate that much passion in the Gentleman's Mill's customer base, why not introduce many, many more potions in honor of the three-year anniversary of Love Potion? And here are just a few of those potions now. Precocean. Gulp down this precocious potion, and if your intentions are pure and your heart is noble, you'll glow green. If you have heinous plots, you'll glow red. We don't care what you do with this liquid Excalibur after the time of sale, but if you don't buy it, the dandy will personally visit your fiancé's father and strongly imply you're hiding something. Number two, it's the motion in the potion. Born in the heartland, this is our most wholesome bark-based abstinence-only potion. Number three, Rococotion. 
You drink this potion expecting it to make you Rococo, and it does make you Rococo. But you thought Rococo meant something else until you looked it up after drinking Rococotion. Number four, compass disc corrector. Pour a little of this potion on the navigator's favorite compass to make his coordinates go haywire and send his whole team into the jaws of certain doom. Can also be used on GPS devices to instantly short circuit them. Number five, potion by birth, patriot by the grace of God. This potion loves its country, and if it had one regret, it's not enlisting. It does lots of other stuff for the country, though. Number six, intervention molasses. If you find yourself trapped in the midst of an intervention in regards to your poisoning your friends and neighbors with your harmful potions, use this elixir to slow down the interveners until their well-meaning words turn into sluggish gibberish. Who can take advice when it's said so slowly? Bonus trait, the intervener's sluggishness also allows you to escape back to your dungeon to mix up some new potions. Number seven, lust potion number nine. This potion, once drunk, allows you to look with lust at those you're attracted to. Only works when the object of lust is visually beheld or imagined. Number eight, potion. What looks like a mere po'boy sandwich contains the transformative powers to turn you into a tycoon in the span of a single night. Potion lasts the length of a career. Number nine, pain potion. Cast Pain Potion at your TV and watch as the splashed character involuntarily quotes seven minutes straight of Thomas Paine's philosophical ponderings. Number 10, Freakishly Fizzy Cough Syrup. You'll be startled by how fizzy this cough syrup is, even if you think you won't be. Gentleman's Mills has made a cough syrup so fizzy that no one cannot be startled by it. Number 11, Tit for Tat. Drink one drop and suddenly you're wearing the bailiff's uniform and the bailiff is back in the hot seat, cuffs and all. Number 12, Frog Leg Stew. This horrible concoction is made from the liquefied remains of former amphibians stewed in the cauldrons of the wartiest witches in all the forest. Important note, Gentleman's Mills makes no claims to any curative powers whatsoever of the froglegs. This one is disgusting and disgusting alone. Number 13, Heads Up. The side effects turn you into a Newton back. Number 14, Puncture Flesh Poachin'. A drop of this potion on your tongue before bed and you'll wake up with competently pierced ears. Number 15, Hair Growth Potion. Drink this potion and lustrous auburn hair will grow wherever you spit. Number 16, Hair Growth Potion 3. An improvement upon Gentleman's Mill's first hair growth potion and a vast improvement upon Gentleman's Mill's second hair growth potion, Hair Growth Potion 2. Hair Growth Potion 3 combines everything you loved about Hair Growth Potion 1 and nothing about Hair Growth Potion 2 with several new features that you'll love paying more for, like a secret ingredient that might finally get the taste of Hair Growth Potion 2 out of your mouth where it's been lingering for months, ruining every meal and inhibiting sleep. Number 17, Hair Growth Potion 2. Don't believe the lies. Hair Growth Potion 2 grows hair with the best of them and tastes great to boot. After you try it, you'll be mad at everyone who ever told you a bad thing about Hair Growth Potion 2. It's all about that hair, baby. Number 18, Hair Growth Potion 4. It's indescribable. Number 19, Hair Growth Potions 5 to 13. This combo pack attempts to meet your hair growth once and needs with an all-out assault, attacking the hairless surfaces in your life from all angles, growing hair by the sheer force of Gentleman's Mill's resolve. Number 20, Ambrosia. The original potion of the gods now bottled, carbonated, and flavor manipulated into a Red Bull alternative. Number 21, Fumble Dumplings. Despite the fun name, this potion unfortunately increases dexterity and hand-eye coordination, plus it tastes delicious, which sucks too, but it does have a good name. Number 22, Hound Mound. If you spray this spritzer supposing a puppy pile, prepare peers for a party profuse with pups. 
Number 23, lawsuit. Sprinkle this entire potion on your work clothes and they will be legal to wear in your own home. Warning, price doubles to $6,000 tomorrow. Number 24, chinchilla wave. Uncork this potion and seal it in any room. When you hear the squeaks and flips, open the door and be run over by an awesome chinchilla wave of cuddly fun. Note, these chinchillas continue doubling every four seconds after you release the chinchilla wave. Number 25, snake venom. It's the potion that makes your bite deadly to snakes. Number 26, total recall potion edition. What better potion is there than to be enraptured by the classic acting and inimitable action sequences of this utter masterpiece? Comes in a DVD case with a disc inside. Number 27, bottomless potion. This bottle of potion never runneth dry as long as you keep it one degree Fahrenheit below its boiling point, which we forget, and we also forget what the potion does if you drink it aside from the obvious. It scalds your poor mouth. Number 28, self-aware potion. This potion knows it's a potion. Number 29, Coke Zero. This potion will make a wicked man honest and a foolish man wise. Available in dusty two liter or a 12 pack of 12 ounce cans minus three cans. Number 30, Crotion. This near-perfect potion from none other than Gentleman's Mills is less potion and more time-traveling device. If you've ever wondered about anthropology, now you can experience it firsthand. This potion slowly but surely turns you into a Cro-Magnon man through brain lessening and skull reshaping. Soon enough, you'll be hunched over exploring the plains for necessary nutrients, grunting the equivalent of look how far we've come. Number 31, Bread Coldener. This potion instantly makes your bread c c cold to the touch and the tongue. Ooh, that bread is c c cold. Number 32, My Body, My Land. This potion will allow you to grow tiny epidermal for sale signs all over your skin surface to make your big boring body into a new suburban development. Shave the hair in one area or let it grow in another. They're your lots and the Property Management Association can't tell you what to do with them. Just don't sell any lots you might want to wash later. Also, this potion makes many activities such as sitting, laying, or activity painful as the for sale signs are highly sensitive. Number 33, All Potion. Every Gentleman's Mills potion, along with a healthy dose of all cleaning solution mixed into a 500-gallon vat that you must sign for when it arrives. Drink it, spray it, dispose of it. It's all up to ye. Okay, and now uh, with an, Im an improved connection, uh, we're going to check in again with our intrepid hermit correspondent, Cayman Bird, who is on the line with me today to update us on his ever-expanding and increasingly bizarre hermit research. Uh, Cayman, you've, you've managed to find a spot with some Wi-Fi connectivity. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, Adam. All right, before we start, Cayman, I have to say, what you called in with last month was very... Uh, Confusing? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, what did you get involved with there? I mean, secret agents and torches and brawling? I wish I knew, Adam. It's just so weird. It's just I'm, I'm not sure what to tell you yet. Yet? I mean, you think there is some hope that we'll figure this out? Yeah, I'm going to get to the bottom of this eventually. It's just, you know, it's too weird to walk away from, but this month I don't have any answers. Okay, so, I mean, what do you have then? Well, after what I witnessed last time, I was shaken. I wasn't really sure how to proceed after seeing that. I hoped I was going to be contacted by uh, Agent Scabies. <laughs> But I haven't heard anything since last time. 
So I decided to just start at the beginning with some good old-fashioned investigative journalism and research the origins of the hermits and see if there were any clues in their past. All right, well, that sounds like a good idea. Did you, uh, did you have any luck with that? Well, I found some fascinating things, but I'm not sure it's going to be any help in unraveling all this weirdness. But it certainly does cast their origins in a rather non-philosophical light. Uh-oh, okay. Well, uh, this doesn't sound good. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, seems that modern hermitry's noble origins may not be nearly as pure as they want us to believe. All their talk of philosophy and the purity of solitude, communing with nature and becoming one with the outdoors, the suffering and purging and ridding yourself of all of society's ideas and constructs, that none of that had anything to do with the origins of the Western Hermit as we know it. Really? Yeah. Let me explain, because it seems that the first records I can find of Western Hermitry gaining any sort of footing was back in the 18th and early 19th century when the British aristocracy birthed a trend called the Garden Hermit. What? The... I, <laughs> I haven't even started yet, Adam. Okay. So, the British aristocracy were responsible for the hermits we now know because they would hire people to dress just like ratty druids and live on their property in a little cave or hovel and act mysteriously like they'd forsaken all of society's ways and search for enlightenment. <laughs> and you want to know why? <laughs> so they could entertain their guests. I mean, they... They paid people to live in their gardens and pretend to be hermits for the sole purpose of functioning as a garden ornament. <laughs> That's where the modern hermit came from. Not because of some philosophical ideal or noble cause. They were dirty people who were hired off the streets by the idle rich to stay dirty and occasionally pop out and keep the garden party chuckling. Sort of like a, like a stinky Rembrandt. Yeah. Exactly, Adam. Wait, wait. So is this where the idea for the the uh, the, the garden gnome came from? Uh, no, actually. That was the Germans. They're based on actual gnomes. Oh. Yeah. So wait. If these hermits were just a scam that was leveraged to increase the British aristocrat's social status in the garden party scene, then how did they end up over here in America? Well, Adam... That's where things get a little more modern. You see, these actors are being hired by the richest of the rich. And so sometimes they got a very good paycheck and has stable employment, a place to live for like a year, and sometimes they didn't. And since the hiring of these actors was kept on the down low so as not to destroy the illusion, many of these actors found themselves without a job would no way get references. So they all started to get together, and they formed a group to protect their interests. What, so, sort of like like a hermit union? Yeah, an actor's guild, to be precise, Adam. The Hermit Acting Guild, or HAG for short. Oh, come on. For, so they formed this group called HAG, and this, apparently was the origin for the collective noun for a group of hermits. 
which I can't imagine gets used very often, but they're called a haggle, Adam. Well, that that defies comment. I, I have nothing to say to that. Yeah. Well, it appears that Hag was able to survive all sorts of skirmishes, wars, and territory disputes, and I can find all sorts of inconsequential references to them through most of the 1800s, but then from about 1895 to 1920, there's nothing. All right, so so what did you find in 1920, though? I found a theatrical review for a play they put on in New York City. <laughs> what? In, okay. Yep. They put on a production of a musical called Our Man Hermit, which, according to this review, did not go over well at all. Um, yeah, I can only imagine. Well, how would you like it if you went to a play or musical expecting something with music and maybe some philosophy even? And instead you got a bunch of disheveled people dressed in rags who just walked back and forth in complete silence, occasionally pantomiming picking berries. That's, that sounds pitiful almost. Yeah, it's also where the trail runs cold, unfortunately, because it seems like Hag disbanded after that. Uh, this is a speculation on my part, but maybe the members of the group spread out into the American wilds and tried to do the only thing they knew how. Act like a hermit, for free, with no one f- taking care of them. Well, that 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 couldn't have ended well. <laughs> I, honestly, I think it's a miracle they even survived. So those are the origins of our hermits here in the in the in the U.S. As as near as I can tell, yeah, they're they're based off actors. Are there? Yeah, their ancestors. Well, well, this is. Well, actually, this isn't really that surprising at all. I mean, you know, given their behaviors. Yeah, explains a lot. Well, Cayman, uh, thanks again for the update, and, and please keep us in the loop, and watch out for those guys with the, uh, with the torches. Oh, yeah. I'll definitely do that. All right. We'll, we'll check in with you next month. Yep. Bye. All right. I am uh, happy to report that the saint has gotten in touch with us again this month. It seems he's found one more beast. Uh, I'm just going to introduce that beast, or at least I'm going to tell you about the sketch that he sent me. It's it's really just a sketch of a, uh, well, just kind of a small, cute little bird with wide eyes. And so we're going to listen to the saint's field notes regarding um, this beast. And then after that, he also sent me two other audio files that uh, I'll tell you the names of, and I'm not exactly sure what the saint's intention was for sending them, but one of them is called The Saint's Guide to City Living, and one of them is called Imagination Lesson. And I'm going to play those for you after we listen to uh, his his field notes on, on this beast, and you can just kind of take them for what they are. Thanks. Blarian. After only a few minutes in the dusty basin, I saw the Galarian miles away. He was little, but I could tell he was rather cute. 
to try to please him, I opened my mouth, opened my eyes, and stretched my lips real wide open, and then forced in the last step to make it look like a smile. I thought he might like this and want to come play. When I held still, he was frozen. And then to try to cheer him up a little bit more, I would wave my head from side to side while holding my shoulders still. He just kept a glare, but every time I would move my head, he would come a step closer. One step, moved ahead, another step. Moved ahead back to its original spot, another step. He was must have been miles away when I first saw him, and it took a while to go. And so I figured I would speed it up, and so I moved my head real fast. He just kept his eye contact with me. Every time my head would move, it would be another step of his little three-toed foot. His wings stayed at his size, his eyes wide open, his beak sternly pointing toward the ground. Those eyes, those big eyes never left mine. I kept zigging and zagging my head back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until he got up to a full sprint. Uh Uh-oh, he's getting pretty close and he might not slow down, so I held my head still. Sure enough, he stopped. What happens next? I began to turn... I turned my lower body, turned my trunk, turned my shoulders, nothing, he held still. Turned my head ever so slightly, ever so tiny of a little step of his. Jerked back to look at him as if to freeze him back into place, but my head twitched again and he made a little twitch step. I began backpedal, my head going as well. And he kept closing the distance. Anytime my head was in motion, he would close the distance. I don't know what it was. He didn't have to flap. He didn't have to jump. But as my head continued to move, he almost slid at an upward angle, about 30 degrees, getting closer, closer, and closer to my face. Eventually, there was nothing to do. He was right upon me. I felt like I had to hold still. I didn't know what to do. Eventually, I tried to back up, but I was in motion. He began pushing on my face so hard. And kept. I, and then I like jerked back, and that made it push unbearably hard to the point it knocked me down. And then I kept like trying to struggle, and he kept pushing. It got further and further and pushing me down into a little rut in a dusty basin. This is the Saint's Guide to City Living. I imagine if you live in a city, you probably sit down from time to time. That chair you think you're on, look more closely. Toss it a few scraps. Look, those aren't four legs, they're four paws. And where did that teacup get off to? (laughs) That was actually another little beast that's getting eaten by the chair beast. And that table you're by, you guessed it, alive and getting eaten by the chair beast. Hmm. If you get the nerve, look outside and realize that you're inside the stomach of a house-shaped beast that's eating an apartment-shaped beast. This is the saint, and I feel like teaching you something about imagination You see, growing up, when you see babies, you're glad they're there, and you'd rather be there 
than not be there. However, you're not really genuinely excited. But then one day you'll have a baby in your family and you really make the connection and really be pleased and really be excited. You're excited because you trust them and you trust them because they know many things that we don't. You see, the baby still has all of its senses. It still can see and take in the world in all the ways it was meant to. Then the people will teach the baby to trade in these senses for crisp speech and communication. As the baby grows, they will soon genuinely not be able to see the things that they once saw. There's no monster. There's no colors down there. You can't actually take in that noise that way. And the baby genuinely doesn't know anymore, and that's when they blend in. They have to imagine a world. They're forced to and conditioned to imagine a world where the things that they know to be true aren't there. And they do this because they seek connecting with other people. The people that feed them are the same ones that pull the strings. Those people are the ones that are telling them there's no monster there. There's no ghost there. You can't fly for a while. And so sometimes people get nostalgic. And out of nostalgia, they want to do things with chemicals that will make them go back to these simpler days where they didn't have crisp speech. And you can see this when people take enough chemicals, they trade the crisp speech back to try to take in the world in different ways. It's rarely satisfying long, and often they just go back to the crisp speech and the filtered world where they imagine a world that doesn't have the things that they know they're there. Close your eyes. Are they closed? If they're closed, nod once. Imagine that I'm there with you so that I can see the nod, but I'm sitting behind you so I can't see your eyes to know if they're closed, so that's why I need the nod. And also, please make sure that your nod takes longer than the span of one of my blinks, because what if I blink at the exact moment that you nod? Our meticulously arranged method of communication will have broken down. Anyway, also lie down and also relax. You find yourself in the American Midwest. Around here there's an old saying, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. This saying guarantees that in exactly five minutes, the weather will change to your liking. A promise that rings true to all true Midwesterners. Will you experience something similar in this visualization exercise? Keep listening and visualizing to find out. You're out in a blizzard and you do not like it. Remembering the saying, you use a fancy stopwatch app on your smart style phone and you press the green start button on your touchscreen. The minutes tick by. One minute. Two minutes. Three minutes. The cold is really starting to get to you. You hate the snow, the wind, especially the wind. Now how much time has passed? Four minutes. One minute later, five minutes have passed. Now is the moment of truth. Does the weather immediately change to your liking? Keep listening and visualizing to find out. The blizzard vanishes and the snow, cold, and wind are all replaced by sunshine, warmth, and stillness respectively. After a wait of exactly five minutes, the weather has changed to your liking. Welcome to the American Midwest. 
whistling a jaunty tune, you begin to stroll about, strolling here and strolling there, strolling up and strolling down. It's strolling at the very highest level, the platonic ideal of strolling. Wow, you are really liking this weather and you don't care who knows it. You're wearing your enjoyment of this weather like an ostentatious cloak and hat combination set. And you are so lost in the deep, deep enjoyment of the current weather that you fail to realize that unfortunately another five minutes has passed and the weather changes again, back to the blizzard. So not only are you back to not liking the weather, but now you're confused. The saying is, if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. That's it. It says nothing about the weather changing if you do like it. And that's when it hits you. There must be someone else in this American Midwest who doesn't like the nice sunny weather. So when the weather became nice and sunny, the clock immediately started ticking for them. That is, they didn't like the weather, so they waited for their five minutes to be up, so the weather would change to something they liked, which means they must like this awful blizzard. So that means there's only one thing for you to do. Hunt down this other person and forcibly expel them from the American Midwest. If they like blizzards so much, why don't they just go to Antarctica where it's never not a blizzard no matter how many people aren't liking it and no matter how many five-minute increments pass. By now, five minutes must have passed because you like the weather again. It's warm and sunny. The blizzard-liker must be hating this, although if he's anything like you, he's taking some comfort from the fact that in five minutes the weather will change back to what he likes, probably another blizzard. But if you find him and expel him from the American Midwest before the five minutes is up, then you'll be able to have nice sunny weather forever. Especially if you take measures to ensure that no blizzard likers ever venture into the American Midwest again, ever again, ever. I just realized that this might be starting to sound like some sort of political allegory. But is it really? Keep listening and visualizing to find out. It's not a political allegory. Sometimes you don't have to keep listening and visualizing for very long to have your pressing questions answered. That's because I want to keep you engaged without making you feel like I'm stringing you along. But will you be fully satisfied with the conclusion of the visualization exercise? Keep listening and visualizing to find out. With the weather changing to whether you like and back to whether you don't like every five minutes, you begin to hunt for the blizzard-liker in earnest. If you were a blizzard-liker, where would you hide? Perhaps inside of a hollow log? You visit every single hollow log you know of, jabbing a pool cue down into each one to prod the blizzard-liker out if he's in there. But he's not in any of them. The only surprising thing you find during the whole hollow log search is that one of the hollow logs has something inside of it that likes to bite the ends off of pool cues and spit them back at people with the force of a thrown bullet. Where else might the blizzard-liker be hiding? You know, in a hayloft under some hay. You visit all of your favorite haylofts, rooting around in the hay with your pool cue. The bitten off end probably means its days of shooting pool are over, but it's still great for stuff like rooting around in hay. But you don't find the blizzard liker even after you've searched the haylofts you don't have strong feelings one way or another for. Do you search the haylofts that you hate? Keep listening and visualizing to find out. The haylofts that you hate have more than earned that distinction. For one thing, the ladders leading up to them are rickety, greasy, and sometimes they lead right past the haylofts to the roofs of the barns, where you slide gracelessly down the shingles and land in either the pigsty or the horse trough. And when the ladders do lead you to the hayloft, you almost wish they wouldn't, because the hay is damp and moldy, and you always find a few lazy farmhands shirking work and dozing in it. And furthermore, if you pretend you're livestock and you eat some of this hay, it'll make your stomach cramp like the twin sons of a gun. 
But yes, you search the haylofts you hate for the blizzard liker, whose blizzard liking is messing up the American Midwest weather for you. But you don't find him. You just find some lazy farm hands dozing in the damp, moldy hay, and when you prod them with your pool cue, one of them takes it from you and breaks it over his knee. So now things are looking grim. How will you ever find the blizzard liker with your pool cue broken in two? Well, you know what to do to find out. Say it with me. Keep doing some listening and keep on with visualizing to see if you find out. Where else can you look for this stupid blizzard liker? This weather changing from something you like to something you hate to something you like to something you hate every five minutes thing is starting to drive you crazy. You'd almost rather just have only the blizzard. But you have one more idea of where to look. One more. Inside your own heart. Is it possible that you are the blizzard-liker? That despite what you think you like, a deeper but no less real part of yourself likes something else? I mean, you've looked in all the hollow logs and all the haylofts that you know of. If the blizzard-liker isn't in any of those places, then where else could he be but within the recesses of your own fickle heart? And is it even possible for you to forcibly expel only that portion of yourself from the American Midwest? And if you did so, could you really be happy? Could you really like anything with a possibly important part of yourself in an entirely different region of the world? There are no answers to any of these questions, whether you keep listening and visualizing or not. You'll never truly find out. You just need to surrender to the mystery, which is my personal favorite way to find peace of mind. So now, listener, it's time to open your eyes and to take that peace of mind with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the 18th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Casey By, Grang Lynch, Chris Nichols, Andy Poppenfoos, Ben Bird, Cayman Bird, Steve Tartaglioni, KT McVeigh, Brent Koningsman, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. Thanks to Casey By, Chris Nichols, and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdren at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed, and be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back in a month with episode 19 of Out of All Doors. 